Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. My name's Dan, in case you don't know me, and I'm continuing our series on Look Again at Jesus, Gentle and Lowly. Um, We've taken some wisdom from this book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. And today we're looking specifically at the beauty of the heart of God. Um, Adam started the series talking about Jesus, who reveals his heart as being gentle and lowly or humble. And then Ella spoke to us last week about Jesus as the friend who will never cast us out, who will never reject us. And today I'm looking at beauty. Um, so, is God's heart beautiful? Um, why does it matter that God's heart is beautiful specifically? Um, and then, yeah, we'll have a chance to respond to that at the end. It, I don't think any time I've ever spoken at this church has ever felt more like a continuation of what we started in worship. Um, what was brought in the prayer time before we began, what's been brought in the worship time, the words that have, have come out are, are really, this feels like a continuation of that. So I'm, I'm really excited that, um, that God's doing something among us as a family today. So... When I think of beauty, um, the first thing actually I kind of go to is, is music, because that was one of my earliest passions. Um, that was my degree. I taught music for five years. I, I played loads of instruments. It consumed a lot of my childhood music. And one of my favorite pieces of music is called um, Sospery by Elgar. And it is just, it's just so beautiful. Um, it starts with the lower strings kind of these, these chords come out, and it's like a warm blanket of, of music. And then the harp gives the only rhythm, like these chords on the harp. And then the violins come in with this, this kind of haunting melody over the top. Um, and it's, it kind of wanders. It's um, quite hard to sing, because it just kind of keeps kind of... Every time you think it's going to land and resolve, the harmony underneath shifts, and it goes somewhere else that you don't expect. And it has this kind of feeling of longing for something or, or remembering something that was, was beautiful but has been lost. And um, I just, it's great. And then halfway through, it kind of lands and, and it, it repeats it, but differently in like a different mood. So the violins start again, but um, much lower down. It gives this rich tone. The cellos join in. And the inner parts are all playing these shimmering chords with tremolo. And it's, 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 it's really beautiful. And it lands in this kind of combined place of of settled acceptance of this beauty which is, is now gone, and I just love it. Don't you think that's beautiful? No? <laughs> it sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But unless you've heard the piece of music, you don't get to experience the beauty. My description, if I've done it well, may produce in you a desire for beauty, but it's not the beauty, it's not the same thing. Unless you see it, or unless you hear it, you, you don't get the beauty. When we saw that picture of Rosanna at the start, she experienced that beauty. And us seeing that picture produced in us the same desire to experience beauty like it. But we've only seen a picture. We didn't get the beauty, did we? On Friday, we had the funeral for Jenny Dent. And all of the stories that came out about her just told of what a beautiful person she was. And, and to be honest, my reaction was, I wish I'd known her better. Because hearing the stories is not the same thing as knowing the person. So, 
is that really it's one of the reasons I would say that we are church, because as we tell stories about God, as we encourage one another, we can create in each other this desire for beauty. But we need to recognize that that's not the same thing as experiencing God's heart and experiencing the beauty of who God is. So today I'm going to tell you about the beauty of the heart of God, but unless you experience it for yourself, um, I'm afraid it's, it's not, good, not enough. So my next question is, why do we need to see the beauty of the heart of God? Why does it matter? I would say that I am a particularly kind of rational person. Any personality profile I do comes out as I'm very much a thinker, not a feeler. Um, so this may not apply to you, but my desires, even, even as a thinker, my desires are mostly driven by my feelings, how I feel about things. And to be honest, most of my desires are selfish and self-seeking, self-serving. And to overcome that, I can, I can think about what I know to be true. And through truth and practicing habits, I can overcome my feelings to make myself more Christ-like, which is just what I aim to do in life. But there is nothing as instantly transforming as seeing beauty. Because when I experience someone's generosity to me, it makes me want to be generous. When I experience the grace of God, it makes me want to show grace to others. Beauty is transformative. If I could plot a graph of how Christ-like any person is in their life, it would start quite low before they know who God is. And then when they see God, they become more Christ-like immediately. And then it probably goes up and down over the course of a life. But as we get to know Christ more, get to know God more, it gradually goes up. And then the Bible says when we see God face to face, we will be like him. And so when we die or when Christ comes back, which may happen in our lifetimes, we will just shoot to the top of that graph and go, we are now like Christ. We have the heart of Christ. I, it says there's no more sadness in, in heaven when heaven and earth are reunited. Um, there will be no sin. And I think that's not because we won't be incapable of it anymore. It's not that we will have that stripped away from us. But when we have the heart of Christ and we are fully others-serving, others-centered, there'll be no, no sin because we just won't want to do it. Our hearts will be transformed. So, if you want to be transformed, to be more Christ-like, seeing his beauty is a, is a real shortcut. So, what is the beauty of God, then? Um, I'm going to draw on two places. So, the Bible tells us about the beauty of God. And um, also, the world contains beauty all over the place. And anywhere there is beauty in the world, typically it's a signpost to the beauty of God. So I'm going to draw on those two places, and the passage I'm going to go to is in Exodus, but I'll tell you a bit of a story for context. So picture Moses with all the Israelites wandering through the wilderness. They've been led out of Egypt. They've been rescued in this dramatic way. Um, But the Israelites keep coming to Moses. There's tens of thousands of them, each one coming to him with their problems, and Moses 
gives them some wisdom from God on how to solve their problems. And Moses' father-in-law comes and he says, um, here's a great idea. Why don't you divide the people into groups, put leads over the groups. They can solve the problems and then just send you the really big ones. So Moses divides the people into groups of 50s and hundreds and thousands and put leaders over them. It's working well. He's also got this tent. I like to imagine it like a pop-up tent. You know, you just throw it up. It's called the tent of meeting. So he throws up his tent and then climbs aside and a cloud comes down on the tent and all the people outside fall down and worship and Moses chats to God like a friend. So that, that's kind of Moses' day-to-day life. Um, and then they all reach Sinai and at Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to the mountain, and um, they sign a covenant, a treaty with God. Um, and he writes the terms of the treaty on these two stone tablets. But um, at the time, the very moment when this treaty is being signed, down at the bottom of the mountain, something has gone horribly wrong. Moses goes back down the mountain and says, Aaron, what's happened? And he says, I don't really know. You know, these people, they're really evil. They asked me to make them a god. I said, throw your jewelry in here. Out pops this golden calf. I don't really know. <laughs> and so Moses smashes his stone tablets. The treaty is completely worthless because on the moment he's signing the dotted line, they are completely uh, ruining it. And, um, and where have we got to? What detail have I missed? And yeah, God sends a plague. He basically says, like, if you want to be like the people in Egypt, if you want to serve the Egyptian gods, I'll treat you like the Egyptians, that's fine. They get a plague, just like the Egyptians had ten of them. And um, Moses pops up his tent, climbs inside, down comes the cloud, and he says, God, are you still going to go with us? And God says, yes, I will. And Moses says, yeah, but if you don't go with us, we don't want to go. He's I'm, I'm going to go with you. <laughs> just come back up the mountain, we'll do it again. And Moses says, this is kind of out of nowhere, Moses says, okay, show me your glory. It's a bit of an odd jump, but God says, okay, just so you know, if you see my face, you'll die. So we're not going to exactly do that, but we'll work something out, up you come. And bring two more stone tablets, I'll print you another copy of those terms. So... Up the mountain, I always picture the scene as Moses is standing like in a little gap in the rock and this huge cloud moves past the mountain. But it's not what it actually says. It says that Yahweh comes down in a cloud and stands in front of him. So you might picture this kind of 10-foot-tall warrior god, but I kind of imagine him maybe, maybe he's just 4-foot tall because everything about this story is completely surprising. God is not this huge, powerful shining monster God. He is humble. He is meek. He, um, all his glory turns out to be his goodness. And um, he passes by Moses and says, you can see me from the back. Um, I don't know what the back of glory looks like or the back of goodness, but picture that however you will. And this is what he declares to Moses. Like context is important because you just have to think about how Badly, Israel has just messed up at the bottom of the mountain. And he says this, Yahweh, Yahweh, El Rachum Vachanun, Erek Apayim, Berav Chesed Ve'emet, which in the NIV translates, 
as the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And I would love nothing more than to do a huge word study on each of these words and take you through all the times I used in the Bible. But if I do that, you don't get to experience it, the beauty of God. You just hear me rambling on about it. So if you'll indulge me, I'll do one word. (laughs) And then um, you'll have time to reflect on what that might mean. Um, So the first of those kind of five words, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and then love and faithfulness. The first one, the compassionate one, um, as with any word, it doesn't translate exactly. So I'll try and build a picture of what this word means. The word is rachum, and it comes from um, the word rechem, which means womb. So it kind of it's like the adjective of the word womb, to be womby. Like there is, there is some kind of deep inside emotion which conveys like, the love of a mother towards a child. That's, that's where we're going. It's sometimes getting translated as mercy because I think it's that feeling of no matter how bad you mess up, I'm always going to love you. It is a self-sacrificial love. And it is a really intense emotion. So, there you have the next slide. Um, the word is used in quite a few stories throughout the Bible, so hoping to see where else it's used, you can kind of build up a picture of, of what it means when God uses it about his own heart and uses it to describe himself. So, in the story of Joseph, when his brothers have sold him into slavery, and he's risen up to become um, second in command over all of Egypt. When his brothers come and then ask for food, he quizzes them about their family. They say he's got another brother, and Benjamin is the other brother who they haven't brought with him. So he sends them away, says, bring back your other brother, which they do. And Joseph, when he sees Benjamin, he feels rachum. And it's translated as he has moved deeply. And he has to go in another room to, to weep for a little while. I mean, he composes himself and comes out. This is Rahum. In Solomon's court, there's quite a famous story about two mothers who come, and there were two babies, one died. Both mothers claim that the living baby is theirs. And when Solomon says, here's what we'll do, split the baby in two, you can have half each. It's the real mother who responds with Rahum. She pleads for his life and says, no, don't kill him, let the other mother have him. That's the emotion of Rahum. Psalm 18 is where David has just been delivered from Saul and all his enemies. And he begins it with, I racham you, Yahweh. It is a grateful, I owe my whole life to you kind of love. Psalm 51 is again David. He's just been called out by the prophet Nathan for cheating with Bathsheba. And he says, because of your great Rahum, God, would you blot blot out my transgressions? There is a never-failing, merciful, tender love involved. Psalm 103 describes it as a father's love. As a father rahams his children, so Yahweh rahams those who fear him. Isaiah 49, can a mother forget the baby uh, at her breast and not racham the child she has born? It is a tender, parental, 
affectionate, but deep emotion. And then the last one, Daniel 9.18. We do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great rahum. It is how God defines his heart, the first word that he uses. The creator of the universe doesn't describe himself as powerful, as majestic, as glorious. His first choice of word is rahum. This is how he feels towards you when you stand before him and say, I need you, God. This is his first and most immediate response. I'm going to tell you another story from Mark's Gospel. The disciples retired after they've been sent out by Jesus. They come back, lots of stories to tell. So Jesus says, let's go to a deserted place. In other words, a desert. But a crowd follow them, and Jesus' response is compassion. It's the same Greek equivalent word to rahum. The crowd get hungry. You probably know the story. And Jesus divides them into groups of 50s and 100s. Sounds weirdly familiar. He feeds them, does the whole thing. He heads for a mountain on his own. The disciples head out in their boat, and they see Jesus walking towards them on the water. And Mark tells us that Jesus intended to pass them by. It's like, why that detail? And it should the whole story of Exodus and this revealing of God's heart should be ringing in your ears as Jesus, the glory cloud, the goodness cloud, the man in the cloud, is passing them by on the water. It's like Jesus is saying, I am God's heart. You couldn't see him face to face, but here I am face to face. You can fully experience all of God's goodness, all of God's glory, all of God's compassion in the person of Jesus. The heart of Jesus and the heart of Yahweh are one and the same. There is also plenty of beauty in the world. One place where I've recognized that I um, am deeply moved every time I see any kind of depiction of someone laying down their life for the people that they love. And here's a few examples. We've got some pictures of classic dad films. Um, in Frozen, Anna at the end, she has a choice of going to her true love who can save her or she can go to her sister and she chooses to save the life of her sister. Tony Stark and the Black Widow in those Marvel films give their lives to rescue the ones they love. In Encanto, the grandfather surrenders his life to defend his family. And each time I, w I watch any of those films, it doesn't matter how many times I've watched them, I'm, I find myself moved to tears at those moments. And I think it is because I've grasped something of the beauty of how Jesus laid down his life for us. And that beauty is reflected in each of these stories. It really gets me. And the thing is, Jesus' sacrifice is even more beautiful and incredible because the people he was laying down his life for were his enemies at the time. It's the very people who were killing him. So in all of these films, you see the, pe the person that he, they've just saved weeping over their lives, mourning for them, 
And it's, it's emotional, but, I mean, how much more tragic if those people never even knew the sacrifice or didn't appreciate it, but the person willingly gives up their life anyway. I've talked enough. I'm going to give you five minutes um, to just respond, and we're not going to sing together. I'm going to let you stay where you are. We're going to play some music in just a second, and um, just contemplate, meditate, reflect on God's beauty. And to some people, that'll be like, yes, I can slip into that mode straight away. And other people will be thinking, how on earth do I do that? What does that mean? Nothing's happening. <laughs> um, so feel free to um, talk to the person next to you. Just say, I never, I never realized that's why I respond in that way to that thing. Or that story about that is incredible. Feel free. We don't need silence. If there's a peaceful atmosphere, that's wonderful. Um, feel free to write something down. Feel free to move into a place that's more comfortable. But um, say to God, God, show me your glory.